Welcome to another episode of The Lanyard, the podcast that goes deep with change makers, business leaders, and community builders. Here's your host, Ben Hanton. Hey, everybody. I'm back in the studio here above Ben's Brewing Company at the Copper Room. And today I do not have a guest in house, but I do have one on the phone. And I'm joined right now by Billy Sutton. Billy, are you in Burke, South Dakota right now? I am. I am. I don't know nearly anything about Burke, South Dakota. Why is it your home? I was born and raised here, I guess. Uh, um, It's a small town, uh, like many other small towns in South Dakota, I suppose. We have somewhere around over 600 people. And... um, just grew up here and loved the loved the community and loved the way of life. And I don't know, born into it, I guess you could say. There's so many young people though that can't wait to get out of the town that they're from and to move somewhere else. And and of course, the college experience is the first step in that. But coming back to where you're from is, especially in rural America, is kind of a special thing. Yeah, I mean, I I was one of those that couldn't wait to get out of town. Um, I grew up on our family ranch and so we lived a ways out of town, about a 25 minute drive each way. Um, and I, I guess I would categorize myself as one of those that couldn't wait to leave. Um, but as I kind of got out into the world and I went to college at the university of Wyoming on a rodeo scholarship and at least partway through that. I realized that there wasn't anywhere else I wanted to be but back where I grew up at some point. And my my story kind of took me back here in a unique way, but um, I, I was really looking forward to coming back to Burke at least at some point and uh, can't imagine being anywhere else now. How is a community like Burke affected by COVID-19? What, what has been happening in your Probably, community? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been a struggle for, at least initially, I think it was really a struggle for businesses. I think some are still struggling, especially when you start talking about like your restaurants and your bars and, and things like that. But, but surprisingly, um, I think there maybe is some a silver lining in that, you know, uh, sales tax revenues for a lot of small communities have actually been up because yeah, yeah. people haven't been traveling. Right. And so <laughs> right. they've been buying more locally, which is something that I've always been an advocate of. Uh, we start, start talking about, you know, main street fairness and all that went into, you know, online sales and, and, you know, that was a big discussion during my time in the legislature and, and things like that. But, uh, the silver lining is that I think people are shopping more locally uh, because they they haven't been comfortable traveling or or you know they just wanted to stay close to home and and so there there is some good things going on uh, because of this if you will well and I think you know those restaurants and bars and other service industry companies myself you know that's what I do for a living we all mm-hmm. figured out that maybe we had a little bit of extra capacity to serve the customer too. So, you know, it was easy when they walk in and I say, what do you want? And give me, you know, $5, but now I got to work a little harder, package it a little differently, (laughs) 
create a way for you to to interact with well, us? Well, like so in in our leadership, which class, which or, you know, leadership program, which we'll probably talk about at some point here, we really stress the importance of flexibility as a um, as a really effective tool to being a good leader. Um, and that isn't any different than what I think a lot of small businesses had to do is, is get really creative and be really flexible in, in how you do what you do to do it really well. And we've certainly seen that happen in, in the town of Burke where, um, you know, a lot of several small businesses have just gotten really creative in, in how they offer their services. And, uh, that's been really important in keeping the doors open and in some instances, finding ways to do things better than they could have ever imagined too. Did you, did you actually do a shutdown of those restaurants or was, or were customers just staying away? Did government step I think it was in and mostly, shut down? Yeah. I mean, not, I think that the County and the city certainly had some ordinances in place to like, you know, limit, um, you know, large crowds, you know, to, to promote social distancing and, and that kind of thing. Um, the example I use of like Stella's restaurant here in town, which is really our only restaurant. Um, we do have a coffee shop that's doing food and, and a gas station and stuff, but, but Stella's, um, kind of closed down on their own because, um, they just weren't able to make it work right now. I think they do have plans to reopen and, and hopefully be you know stronger than ever. Um, but you know, they were doing like delivery and, and car side, you know, or, or you know, service, um, without having people come in. Uh, but they just were having a hard time making it work that way. But other, um, you know, like the coffee shop, they seem to have been really successful in, you know, delivering and, uh, being able to keep their doors open. And now they're, you know, things have lifted a little bit, you know, the different businesses allowing people in. Um, and, and that kind of thing. You know, I work at the bank, which which we closed our lobbies, um, you know, quite a while ago. At least, at least been a month, if not uh, six or seven weeks ago. And uh, we've had to kind of think about how we do things differently as well. You know, we do a lot via email or by phone or by appointment. Um, but eventually, here we're going to open up our lobbies and we get some safety equipment in. Um, yeah, and to make sure that we're protecting our employees and, and the public. So, and your specific role at that bank, I believe you're in the you're like in the investment area, or are you in trusts, or yep. what do you do? Yeah, no, I do I do investment work, so help people save for retirement or save for um, college for their kids, um, or just to just to invest um, for their own uh, for their own purposes, you know. So. Yeah, I do. I do that work. And then I'm also a human resources manager as well. So I, I wear a couple different hats and then I'm also on the board of directors too. So I've kind of been in all those conversations of, you know, how do we, how do we handle things moving forward and how do we make sure that we're, you know, being respectful and, and to our employees and to the public and, and how we uh, kind of navigate, you know, some really uh, different times that we're, that we're faced with. Well, one investment question for you before we 
dive too deep into your your story. How is it that the market crashes, there's 25% unemployment, and yet now the market's back to where it was before this all started? What's, <laughs> what's going on there? I don't know if I have all the answers to that, but I, I think that, um, you know, as the economy improves, people are going to be more confident in, um, in what that looks like moving forward. And, and, uh, you know, it's probably likely that we were faced with uh, a market correction even prior to uh, COVID-19. Yeah. I think it probably just hurried things along and um, maybe people are just feeling more confident. You know, it's, I don't know that there's ever really a rhyme or reason for why a lot of the market does the way it, it does. Um, but you know, you just got to be consistent in what you do yeah. as an investor, I think. Well, we jumped right in here talking about COVID-19 and about Burke, but we didn't set it up who you are. And so, of course, how most people got to know you was a gubernatorial campaign. You were the Democratic nominee um, in South Dakota, and you ran against Christy Nome. And I think a lot of people thought that for once <laughs> a Democrat had a chance to win the 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 peer, you know, to win the state house. Sure. And you came within, I think it was like eleven thousand votes, uh, but you sure. did come up short. So that's how most people mm-hmm. know you. But how do how do we even get to that point? You, one of the things that really surprised me learning about you is you're younger than me. I'm thirty eight. And I always felt like I was the young guy being involved in things. And then you find out that you're not so young anymore. And and all of a sudden there's a 35 year old running. How old were you at the time? 34, 35? Oh, let's see. In 2017 is when I announced. (laughs) And so I would have been, uh, well, I just turned 33. Oh my gosh. So the election was 2018. I was 34 when the election occurred. And then I turned uh, 35 in 2019. Now I'm 36. So uh, time time flies, I guess. (laughs) Prior to that, though, of course, you had served time in the – served time is probably the right way to say that. But the the legislature – Yeah, (laughs) served time is a good way to put it. Um, I, I did serve in the Senate for eight years. Uh, so I got elected in, uh, 2010. Uh, and when, when I got elected, I was actually, uh, 26. So, um, I, I did serve there for eight years and it was really an enjoyable time for me at, uh, serving my district and state. And, and, you know, it's funny when you say like, you know, how did I get here? Well, I, I never saw myself in politics, uh, it wasn't something that I had ever planned on. It wasn't like I, I grew up thinking, you know, that I, that it's something I wanted to do because when I growing up, all I really wanted to do was rodeo. I mean, I, I started, uh, I grew up on a family ranch and, and started rodeoing at a really young age. And, and I fell in love with it. I just, that's, that's all I wanted to do. I mean, I did other stuff too. I mean, I played football. I wrestled. I even thought about wrestling in college and I, I was an athlete, um, but I was also involved in everything else too. I was involved in band and choir. And it was just really important um, that my parents stressed that 
you know, you, you be involved in a lot of things. And I think that's uh, kind of a good example of what happens in, in small communities, right? Uh, where you're just kind of involved in, in everything. Somebody's um, got to be, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's really important for small communities because if somebody doesn't do it, then we we got a problem. Um, it's just not going to get done. And so it was really important for my parents that I'd be involved in a lot of things. But at the end of the day, what I was mainly focused on was rodeo. And that's really, that's really where I felt my life was headed. And that's really all I wanted to do was to be a competitive rodeo athlete and, and do it professionally, which I did for a few years before, before my accident. And so, um, yeah, how do you? I, get, I just never saw myself in politics. How do you even begin a life in rodeo? Because my experience, I'm from Webster, South Dakota, up in Northeast South Dakota, and my experience with the rodeo would be, you know, about once a year, maybe in Watertown or maybe at a county fair, you'd you'd hear about a rodeo. But mm-hmm. I assume that you know there are more than just that one, and you're traveling a lot. But how do you even get the practice skills in? to to become great at it is it just something you're doing at your ranch who's your coach is it just sit on that thing and see what happens (laughs) see how good you are at at holding on how does it how does it work well there's definitely more to it than you know um than people think you know it's there there are there are hundreds of you know probably thousands of rodeos across the united states and I guess you get into it because it's kind of a way of life, or at least most people get into it because they were raised um, around it. Or, you know, like for instance, growing up on a ranch is a really good way to get involved in rodeo because uh, you're around animals, you're, you're riding horses all the time. Um, And especially if your parents rodeoed or your grandparents rodeoed. And that was my case too. My, my grandpa Billy had buck and stock, um, that he would take around to rodeos with, if you've ever heard of Casey Tibbs, who's yeah. probably one of the most famous rodeo cowboys that ever lived. And so my grandpa used to have bucking bulls that he would take around to rodeos with Casey Tibbs. And that was, you know, seems like a long, long time ago. Um, and so they just continued the, you know, that and then the ranch. And then my dad rodeoed, my mom rodeoed. That's how they met each other was through rodeo and then uh, growing up as kids we were just exposed to it you know and so you're riding horse all the time and then mom and you know you'd be watching the national final rodeo on tv when you're four or five years old and and you just grow that interest and then your mom and dad say hey you know should we go to a should we go to junior rodeo in in, in atkinson nebraska that's the first one i remember ever going to and I, you know, you'd say, well, yeah, of course. And they put you on a calf or a sheep and, and you just, it just grows from there. And then you start honing your skills. You know, we had a mom and dad built an indoor arena. And so we started practicing, you know, roping calves and doing all of those things at a very young age. And it just grows from there. Uh, you start finding out what you're good at, what you can get better at. And then eventually, you know, I started riding saddle Bronx and I loved it. I got, I, I just, it was a adrenaline rush. It was, um, to me, 
the original, probably the original um, rodeo event, you could argue, was saddle bronc riding, where local ranch hands would come together to see who was better at, at breaking a horse. And rodeo has come so far from where its origins were uh, to be able to actually make a living at it, traveling across the United States to essentially compete against other professionals to win money. And the, and rodeo is so different from other professional sports too, in that, you know, you don't have these big contracts. You don't, you don't have guaranteed money that you're going to, you actually have to perform and win to make money. And it's very difficult and very challenging. It's a, it's a purse. Essentially you win. Yes. Essentially a rodeo, you know, committee puts up money, you know, they'll have sponsors that, that, um, donate money to the rodeo. Um, they also, you know, in fact, we're, we're, you know, I, I'm the president of the Burke Riding Club, which hosts the rodeo every year here in Burke, South Dakota, third weekend in July. And it's very difficult, especially in these times to put on a rodeo. Um, but you have, you know, people that come watch that pay for tickets and then you have sponsors and you put all that money together and you provide a, a source of entertainment for people to watch. But then you also have a purse that, you know, you add money to events and the contestants compete to win that money. And that allows you, if you win, you get to keep going to the next one. So how old were you when you realized you're pretty good at this? I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I guess I never thought of it that way. I, uh, I mean, I had a real drive to be, to be really good, to be the best. I don't know if I ever, there was a time where I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm really good at this. It was more about like, I just loved it so much that I wanted to be the best and I would do whatever it takes, you know, whatever it took to get there. Um, but I, I realized probably as early as, you know, seven, eight years old that like, this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I mean, I don't know how many people find that, you know, that early. Um, but I certainly did uh, at a very young age realize that roadie is all I wanted to, to focus on. How about your friends? Were they in that world or did you make friends from that world? I, I guess my question yeah. is growing up in small town for me, you know, you go out for basketball because your friends go out for basketball. Um, yep. In your case, it sounds like maybe it was more family driven. Definitely family driven, but then you, you know, so you spend time with your, you go to those rodeos and you make friends just like you would in any other event, whether you're a football player or a basketball player or wrestler or whatever it is, or just friends in school, you know, but we would rodeo all summer. I mean, we would go to two or three rodeos every weekend all summer long and you would end up seeing a lot of your, those same friends at a lot of those rodeos and you would just make new friends as you went to the rodeos. Still some of my best friends to this day are people that I met while I was rodeoing, uh, whether it's in high school or, or professionally or in college. Um, and so you just made those friends as you went along. And, and the rodeo, it's really a big family, the rodeo community. I mean, you're only a stranger but once. And uh, that's the other thing that's unique about rodeo is that, you know, you're competing against other people, but probably more importantly, you're competing against the animal. Uh, you know, you're trying to ride a bucking horse to the best of your ability, 
to win, but it's really you against the animal, not necessarily you against your friend because your friends there helping you, you know, get your saddle set and turn your horse out of the chute. And I mean, so it's really a unique sport in, in that way compared to, you know, other team sports where, you know, your, your opponent's kind of the enemy. In this case, your opponent is oftentimes your best friend. <laughs> yeah. I was also surprised to learn, you know, I'm just not in the rodeo world, so I didn't know that there were college teams, rodeo teams. Is that something yeah. that's common throughout the country, or is that yeah, the main yeah. reason it's, you it's ended more, up in Wyoming? It is. I mean, it's more common than you think, um, and it's grown over the years, too. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, they had college teams, but it's really gotten to be a lot bigger and better um, and gotten to a point where, you can get your college paid for through scholarships, just like you could if you're on a football scholarship or a basketball scholarship. So um, I I was rodeoing in high school. I finished uh, second in the nation at the national high school finals in the saddle bronc riding, uh, which was a, a big accomplishment. And I, I finished second by one point. You know, so Ooh. I was very close to being the national champion um, when I was a senior. And that created a big opportunity for me. The, the University of Wyoming rodeo coach, who, which, you know, my, my older sister, Dee, went to school there. My mom went to school there. And they both rodeoed for the University of Wyoming. So the coach knew my family. And he called me up and offered me a full ride uh, to go rodeo for the University of Wyoming Cowboys. And I immediately said, absolutely, uh, I can't think of anything better than to be able to go to school, have it paid for, and to be able to rodeo in one of the best college teams in the country. And so I did that and had a really good, really good college career there. Um, I qualified for the national college finals all four years. Um, I finished my college career there as the, as the highest point getter in University of Wyoming history, um, partly because I was doing several events. You know, I was I was saddle bronc riding, I was cap rope, and I was team rope, and I was steer wrestling. So um, I was competing for, for the all-around um, all year long each year as well. So, so uh, it, was, it was a great experience. The logistics of this, though, as a college sport, the, the university then has – they have stock that they own, and they uh, have practices every day. Uh, how does this work? I yep. mean, again, you understand how basketball and – Football and traditional yeah. sports would practice and hit the weight room and do some uh, yeah. calisthenics. Same thing for you, I yeah. imagine. Yeah, it was the same thing. I mean, I was a I was an athlete, so I worked out a lot. Um, they some some programs have gotten better about having a more structured workout. Uh, when I was going to school there, we didn't really have like you know a program where they said you know you're going to work out at this time and and you're going to you know, have a trainer and do these kind of things. We kind of had to do that on your own. I was able to do that because, you know, with football and wrestling growing up, I had learned how to um, be a self-starter and to work out on my own and what I needed to do to be um, to the best of my ability. And so I did a lot of that on my own. Uh, but as far as practices, yes. I mean, they the, the university had um, – calves and steers and those kind of things to practice your time events and then they would usually partner with some you know local stock contractor 
that had bucking horses and they would buck horses, you know, two or three times a week. And you, um, could choose to practice if you wanted to, it wasn't required, but if you were going to make the team, uh, you were usually out there, you know, uh, practicing and showing them what you had. And, yeah. and so, you know, that was pretty important. And so the, the odds of going professional, I think one of the things that I read about you too, is that you, what's unique about rodeo is you could be a pro and be in college at the same time. So yep. you were competing yep. and making money and also going to school. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I, I hate to admit this, uh, but you know, so, so in high school, you know, I was a, a 4.0, I was auditorium in my high school class. I, I did really well in school. And then when I got to college, um, I, I started as uh, a sports medicine um, major is what I wanted to do. Um, I kind of adjusted that as I went along and realized that really wasn't for me. So I switched to business finance, but I, I unfortunately kind of put my, you only have so much time in a day. And I, I sometimes put my um, studies kind of at the back burner to some degree because I was, I was college rodeoing. And then after my second year of college, rodeo, I started rodeoing professionally. And so when you start rodeoing professionally, you're, you're traveling, you know, all over the United States, uh, especially your rookie year, because you're trying to win um, the rookie year award, which uh, it's interesting um, because there, you know, I, I ended up in politics, but there's also politics in rodeo, um, especially in the rough stock. So that's bareback riding, saddle bronx, and bull riding, because you're being judged by two individuals that are, are you know, there's a point system of a total of 100 points, and each judge can allocate 50 of those points, 25 for the, for the animal and 25 for the rider. <laughs> and so your score is based on kind of an opinion. Um, it, it's based on, you know, there's certainly things you do to um, score more points. You know, like in saddle bronc riding, you know, you have to have a good style. You have to turn your toes out. You have to set your feet, you know, in, over the horse's shoulder. There's a lot of things you can do to improve your score, but a lot of it happens really quickly. You know, it's an eight-second ride. And so you're reliant on a judge determining how much they liked what they saw. And so there's, as with anything, there's probably politics involved. I probably didn't realize it at the time, um, how involved politics is in the world. But it's, it's also involved that way with, with rodeo as well. And so, (laughs) yeah. And so, um, you know, you worked really hard to build good relationships with people. You worked really hard to, you know, do your best, um, in, uh, with your performance, but you were really reliant too on the animal, you know, was the animal going to perform the best of their ability that day? And so there's a lot of factors in, in being successful, um, in the sport of rodeo, uh, that are sometimes out of your control. And so you got to learn that and just be able to shake it off and go on to the next one. And hopefully things go better for you at the next rodeo if it didn't go well for you at the first one. So when you end up back in Burke, how, again, did you say, yeah, I'm going to take out petitions and run for the legislature? Well, yeah, it, it's it's kind of complicated because, like I said, you know, we talked about my rodeo career and that's all I wanted to do but I had a pretty um, life-changing event occur for me in 2007 
I had a horse flip over on me in the chute at the Badlands Circuit Finals in Minot, North Dakota. And I can tell you in the, in the rodeo world, uh, you know, you worry about having injuries, you know, broken leg, broken arm. In fact, I, you know, like if I had friends that were going skiing or something, I say, well, no, I'm not going to go skiing because I, what if I, what if I break my leg or break my arm or something that I'm not going to go rodeo. So, so I, I limited some of the things I did, um, so that I could continue rodeoing in the way I wanted to. So you kind of worried about those kind of things, but you'd never, I guess I had never worried about like a, a career ending injury. And that's what I was faced with in 2007. What when happened? that horse flipped over, when that horse flipped over in the chute, uh, I, I, and she stood back up, I had broken my back. I, she, she slammed me against the back of the chute. And when she stood up, I had shattered two vertebrae and had a spinal cord injury and was instantly paralyzed from the waist down. And that was a pretty, um, pretty stark moment that I, you know, still kind of remember as if it was yesterday. Yeah. Um, that, that changed my life forever, uh, in an instant, uh, from going from somebody that was so focused on, you know, really what I was going to accomplish in the rodeo arena to being told, not only will you never rodeo again, you'll probably never walk again. And so to have to face that reality at 23 years old, after all that I had, work to accomplish to feel like, you know, where do I go from here, uh, was pretty devastating at the time. Um, but hindsight, I say this a lot, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't change a thing. And, and I've, I've said that to people and got some, um, interesting looks from people like, well, why, why would you say that? And I say that because of what I've been able to do since then, the, the incredible people that are now in my life that I can't guarantee would have been had I not gotten hurt, which the first example of that would be my wife, Kelsey, you know, at the time we, when I, when I got hurt, we were only dating for about, you know, two to three weeks and she stuck with me through everything. And now we have a four year old son. Uh, we have another one on the way at the end of July here and it's just been an amazing journey that may have never happened had I not had that injury. And, and I've still been able to live a really uh, productive life in my opinion, since I got hurt, I have to do things differently now. It's not ever going to be the same, but you just, you figure it out, you know, you figure out how to, how to do things differently and how to have an impact. And because of that, I think, you know, because of all the people that were there for me, you know, because I have to say, you know, I didn't get through that most challenging time by myself. I did it with the help of others around me. It kind of awakened in me like, a, a, I guess, like a service over self mentality. You know, I, I was so focused on myself for so long that I had decided that I, I wanted to give back in some way and that, and then I also took on the philosophy of when one door closes, another one opens. So I feel like I had to think that way to, to survive what I'd went through and that these things had to happen for a reason. And I think that reason was to, um, you know, have a amazing family and to enter public service. 
And so when I, when I got home, so, so I got hurt in 2007, I was supposed to graduate that December. I picked my classes back up in January of 08. And then I came home in the summer of 2009, uh, and, and got asked to run for the legislature in early 2010, um, by Julie Bartling, who, uh, was the sitting Senator at that time. And I thought, you know what, why not? When one door closes, another one opens. Like my grandpa was in politics back in the seventies, but and my grandma had run, uh, for some offices in the eighties and nineties. You know, so I had that kind of that background, but it just wasn't anything I was interested in at the time. Uh, but then when I got asked, I, I thought, why not? I could have a positive impact and, uh, the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> so you, you win that election, you get to peer. How many Democrats are in the Senate? There's 35 oh, senators, my right? Gosh. There were only five. I was one of five. That was a pretty um, horrible cycle for Democrats. Uh, I think prior to that election, there were, I want to say, 15 out of 35 Democrats in the Senate. And we went from 15 to five in one election. In fact, I was the only candidate running for the Senate that had a race that won a race. <laughs> so the other four senators that got in were unopposed in that election. So I was the only one that won a race that had a race, which is just, it's, it's hard to believe, but that was the reality at that time. And I was a Democrat in a Republican district too, which made it even more challenging um, to, to win that race. I, I don't know if I thought I was going to win or not. I was confident, I guess, that, that we had run a good race and that, that people knew me and trusted me and was fortunate to, to win and, and, and serve there then for, for eight years for, for this district. So, and that was a, even the next election cycle, they redistricted and put more Republicans in my district. And I, I won that race by a larger margin, I think 60-40. And then the last two cycles that I was in office, I didn't have an opponent. And Scared so, him out. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if that was the case or not. I, I, I don't know. But but I didn't have an opponent. And, and um, you know, it was fortunate, I guess, I didn't have to, to you know, run – campaign um, during those last few cycles. But how do you, how do you ground yourself in peer when you walk in and you're one of five in a body that has 35, the house was I'm sure dominated by Republicans too. And you had a Republican governor. Mm -hmm. And so they don't need you there to get any of their work done. And it's going to be hard to convince them to do anything that you want to do. How do you, how do you even begin? Well, I think first of all, I, I didn't, I've never really cared that much about party affiliation, to be honest. Um, I care about people and I care about relationships with people. And so what I have always done and what I did in, in my time in peer was just to build relationships, no matter who it was. If, if we agreed on a certain issue, I'd work with you and let's figure out how to get it done and let's figure out how to get something accomplished. And so some of my best friends during my time in legislature were Republicans um, that we didn't agree on everything, but nobody agrees on everything, you know, but, 
But I, what I can tell you is that the most, I, I would venture to say on 80 plus percent of the issues, we did agree. And I think it's short-sighted to not try to work with somebody just because you're a, a different political party. Um, and, and that's not good for the people um, that, that we represent because, yeah, so I'm a registered Democrat, but I represent Republicans, independents, and Democrats in my district. And in fact, the majority of them were, were Republicans. So I, I, it's important to set those labels aside and to uh, work to get something accomplished that's, that's good for, for everybody. And so I, I really enjoyed taking on that challenge, to be honest. And what we ended up finding is a, even though there were five of us, and at some point I think we got as many as seven or eight um, Democrats you know, in, in the Senate, that we were able to have a big impact because of the leaders that we had um, that were willing to work across the aisle to find common ground and get things done. And, and oftentimes what we found is that the, on a lot of issues, the Republicans were divided and we could make a big difference with our, you know, five to eight votes that we had at any given time. And we could actually get some really good things done. Um, Governor Dugard uh, really worked with us well and was open to our input and uh, was, was always willing to listen and, especially in his, I think his last four years, he surrounded himself with some really good people. And uh, we were able to get, in my opinion, a lot of good things accomplished. What, what was the Cowboy Caucus? <laughs> so the Cowboy Caucus was uh, um, a group of us that I guess kind of lived together. We all came from a ranching and farming background. It was, you know, Troy Heiner and Jason Frerich, who were both Democrats, and then Ryan Maher, who is a Republican and we lived together in peer. So uh, we were all just really good friends and, and we lived together. And, and what we started doing is at the end of, end of session, we would have kind of a get together, you know, a Cowboy caucus um, get together where uh, legislators and uh, of, of both parties would all come together and just kind of, wind down and, and just have a good time together. And just, it was a way to kind of remember that, you know, Hey, we're, we're all just people. We're all, you know, trying to do the best we can for, for the people we represent and that we just shouldn't forget that we're closely connected as South Dakotans because towards the end of session, sometimes it can get a little heated, you know, when you're dealing with a, the budget that a lot of people are frustrated with on both sides of the aisle and, you know, you can get some issues that, that really get heated. And it's just important to remember that we have more in common than not. And that's kind of where the concept of the Cowboy Caucus began is, is the values that we were raised with, you know, honesty, integrity, hard work, and caring for your fellow South Dakotan um, is really an important piece of our way of life. And that's, Kind of how the Cowboy Caucus began. Yeah. So after the gubernatorial campaign, where you come up short, I've I've known other candidates who've been in that position, and one of the comments is that you know the candidate might be ready to move on, but they've spent so much time convincing others, family, friends, volunteers to be a part of the campaign, to buy into the vision, to say, we are going to win this. And when that doesn't happen, 
you're surrounded by a lot of people who are also kind of devastated or depressed. Um, what, what did the first step look like the day after the election? Yeah, I had the same concern, honestly. I had the concern that we'd come, we had come so close. You know, I mean, it was, it was as close as we've been in a long time to bringing some, you know, meaningful change to peer. And it was frustrating. And I can't imagine how, you know, how frustrating it was for my team and, and all the people around me that we would come so close and just not quite pull it off. And so I worried that there would be this thought out there that, well, it's just not possible, you know, we just give up. And that was not what I'd heard from supporters. Actually, I heard a message of hope. Like they, they felt hopeful again for the first time in a long time that something like this was actually possible. That even though we didn't pull it off, we came so close that, that it was, it felt possible again. It felt like the people were heard and, you know, what was it, 51% to 48%. I mean, it, it was just so, so close. And so I was really happy to hear that from so many supporters that they felt hopeful again. And um, it was a really positive thing after losing such a, such a close race. So where does the Billy Sutton Leadership Institute come into play and what was the yeah. genesis? I think it's something I've been interested in a long time, honestly, but we've never really put it to action. I didn't really feel like I had time to put something like that into action. And then after the campaign, some of my team were talking about, you know, like, what do you, what do, you do now? And so Kelsey and I sat down and said, well, you know, I'm not in elected office anymore. Um, I, I don't feel like I'm done serving. You know, I feel like I have more to give. And what does that look like? And so we thought, well, there were just a lot of people that were really interested in my style of leadership um, to the degree that I didn't focus on um, party affiliation. I didn't focus on how we're different. I focused on how we're alike. And I focused a lot on how we can work together to improve our communities. So we said, well, why not put a structure in place where we can help other, um, other individuals um, fulfill their need to serve or their need to give back to their community. And so we started this leadership Institute a little over a year ago. Uh, the first class we started with, 13 individuals we originally were going to start with 12 but we had a i mean i was expecting 40 or 50 applicants we got 100 applicants for the first class and so we got down to our final selections and we couldn't decide who to cut because i mean we could have taken 25 or 30 of those people really easily but we wanted to start with a limited class and so we ended up taking 13 and it's really a program that's focused on community engagement. And we require that all our, all our leaders take on a community engagement project and that they work to see that to completion and that they try their best to be better leaders in their communities. It has far exceeded our expectations. Um, it has been tremendous, the support we've received from individuals either donating to the cause 
because, you know, like we don't make anything off of this. I mean, Kelsey and I don't make a dime. In fact, we, we give a lot of our own resources to the project. Um, we are a 501c3 registered now. And so it's just been really great to see all the, all the support, um, from individuals out there and to see how much our first class has accomplished and really excited to see what they accomplish in the future. And so we're moving on with our second class. In fact, we just um, met yesterday trying to kind of narrow down um, and we'll be announcing soon the, the next class. I think we're going with 12 um, this time. At least that's the plan. <laughs> and, um, and see where that goes. Uh, and you're gonna yeah, have a new really baby. Excited. <laughs> You'll have yes, a new baby yes, in that. That's yeah. We're we're gonna have a new baby at the end of July. Or, <laughs> yeah, but nothing like a good challenge, you know, to to feel like you're alive. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely, kids will make you feel like you're alive. Yeah. So yes. where do these people in the leadership institute? Where do they come from? Where do they live? And and how do they meet up? Gosh, I mean, all over South Dakota, um, you know from Eagle Butte to Sioux Falls, Rapid City, Clear Lake, Harrisburg, Watertown. I mean, our first class was from all over South Dakota. It's important to us that we focus on um, not only diversity of area, but but diversity in our class. Um, so we earmark at least, um, you know, 40% for, um, you know, Native Americans or people of color and, uh or, I mean, to, you know, actually it's over 25% is what we focus on. And just to make sure that we're getting a really diverse um, group of people that um, can find common ground and that can build stronger communities. And so, uh, and the age range is really wide as well. Um, and we also make sure that we have diversity in um, men versus women. And, uh, it's just been, it's been really fun to see. So, uh, the next class, I mean, the applicants were from all over South Dakota. We even had somebody apply from outside of the United States <laughs> this round, <laughs> which, um, you know, uh, unfortunately we're just going to keep, you know, trying to focus on, on South Dakota applicants for now and, and see where it goes. But, um, the feedback we got was really good from our first class and they really, um, enjoyed what we did and the style of leadership that we're promoting and hopefully the next class uh, enjoys it as well. What um, what are you doing different than Leadership South Dakota, another program and that's kind of doing something yeah, there's similar? A, there, yeah, there's a lot of great leadership programs out there. I, I think that um, there was certainly room for another one um, for a couple of reasons. You know, we, uh, we do a lot of fundraising so that our, our leaders don't, it doesn't cost them anything, uh, to participate. Whereas some other programs maybe charge, um, for their, uh, participants to be in their program. Uh, ours is, is at no cost to the participants. And I think the other thing that really sets us apart is, is just the community engagement projects that we require that they take on, you know, so they have to come up with a project, which we don't tell them what to pick. They just have to pick something that they're passionate about. You know, I don't want to tell somebody what it is that they have to do for a project, but it's important that they take initiative because I think in order to be a good leader, you have to work hard to accomplish something. 
Um, and you have to work hard enough that you're going to fail sometimes. And I have to tell them, I actually want you to fail because if you're not failing sometimes, you're not trying hard enough. And, and to never give up, even though you might fail. And so the community engagement part of our project, I think, is unique um, from other uh, leadership programs that are out there as well. Um, so where do we go from here? What's it going to look like when the next election cycle comes up or the next opportunity comes up? Do you think there's a future for you in politics again? Do you have your yeah, I, mindset on I, something I really else? I really don't know right now. I, I've, my focus has definitely been on, you know, the leadership program in the near term, certainly. Uh, one thing I can tell you that I really try to keep myself um, grounded in that, you know, I, I used to focus far into the future. You know, I used to focus on, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to make it to the national finals. Really, I'm going to be a world champion saddle bronc rider. But what I found is that the only thing I can control is day to day. You know, what can I do today to make the world and my state a better place? And so I really focus on what I can accomplish from one day to the next. That doesn't mean that you don't try to plan at some point um, the best you can. But I will tell you that having a four-year-old and another one on the way, um, my number one focus is always going to be family. And that is never more true than right now that I just, absolutely have to focus on you know how we can um uh, you know prepare for new ones coming into the world here at the end of july and and what that looks like for our family so if i do decide to run you know it'll be a it'll be a family decision i uh, will have to be in a really good place um and we'll have to feel really comfortable with taking something on like that again it was a it was a very very challenging campaign uh, it was hard. It was incredibly worthwhile. Um, obviously, wish wish I would have won, but we didn't. And so, uh, when one door closes, another one opens. And the door that opened was the the leadership institute, well, and being able to grow our family. You know, so yeah. And your and wife, then, I was going to say, your sorry, wife's going to need you home because you know she's got her own career and she's a county she, commissioner, she does. and she's not going to. She has a race. Um, this cycle as well. Yeah. And so I've, I've always been very supportive of that. Uh, she does a great job and I want her to continue to be able to do that. So, uh, she was incredibly supportive of my, you know, our campaign, I I should say together, um, and being there for me and taking on a lot of the duties when I was gone. And so I want to be able to reciprocate that and to be supportive of the things that she's doing as well. And she's really involved in the community in other ways as well. And that's the other thing that I've, I've started doing even since the election. Um, you know, we had a tornado in Burke, um, uh, you know, last August that was very devastating. And we started a, a what's called a long-term recovery group that was presented to us by a group of nonprofits nationally that um, helps communities uh, rebound during times of disaster. And so I've been able to be a part of that long-term recovery group. And what we did is we raised money for people affected. And then we put together a formal application process and we're able to grant out about $130,000 to individuals that were affected by the tornado, whether that, you know, is to um, 
come up with money that they were short that maybe insurance didn't cover or help pay premiums on insurance or um, just a number of things to, to help them recover and feel like um, they could get things back to normal after such an incredibly devastating event. And so then what our board has decided to do since that, we just completed our, our work actually within the last uh, couple of weeks here. Um, we're, we're thinking that we want to transition that group to kind of like a, a COVID relief um, long-term recovery group where we can help people that um, maybe lost their job or small businesses that are struggling to kind of help them get by. And so um, the board seems really interested in that. And so I think that's kind of the next project that that we'll kind of take on here in the near term is, is how we help and support our local community in that fashion by maybe maybe raising money or resources or or even if that's just access to resources like you know mental health um, help and things like that. So we're kind of looking forward to what that's going to look like um, in the near term too. Well, I'm. One more question about this new baby on the way. Are you going to find uh-huh. out? Do you know if it's a boy or a girl? We're not going to find out. Oh, you're uh, one of the few. We, yeah, yeah. we didn't find out with Liam. And, uh, of course, he was a boy. And uh, I don't know. I I, I mean, I, I'm curious, but <laughs> um, I don't really care one way or the other. I do kind of want a girl. Just I don't know. I think it'd be fun to have a boy and a girl. and. And, uh, but either way, as long as, uh, everybody's healthy, we don't really care. So we decided that we didn't really need to find out. Yeah. We, we didn't find out on either of our girls and people think that's crazy because they have to prep and they have to plan. (laughs) And it's like, paint the walls yellow and you'll figure it out on the next day. Plus then you get to have fun going out shopping to, to buy the new clothes. So exactly. It's just, I, I guess we like the surprise and. And so that's what we've kind of chosen to do. And, and certainly, you know, anybody can choose to do it how they want, but that's kind of how we've, uh, we've decided to roll it out. But so. at the ultrasounds, were you kind of peeking or not really? I really don't even know what I'm looking at there. <laughs> I know. Time. I don't know how they tell. Um, but, um, I, I don't know that if I'd have seen one where there, that I'd even known what I was looking at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought I saw something. I was like, "Oh, it's going to be a boy." And now, no, no. <laughs> yeah, it's probably yeah. like a, so, a elbow or something. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I, I'm looking forward to learning uh, learning how your family grows over the summer, and also to see what your next moves are. But thanks so much for coming on and telling us a portion of your story today. No, I I really appreciate you having me on. I think it's cool. Uh, the things that you're doing and and I'd, I'd never been a part of a of a podcast like this so it's kind of a unique experience for me too and and so I really really have enjoyed it and I appreciate you appreciate you having me on is so. there any place we can point people to on the internet to learn more about what you're working on yeah so you can go out to our um, our website for the Sutton Leadership Institute it's just suttonleadership.org and that's where we you know sent people to apply and you can view you know our mission and kind of what our other fellows have, you know our, our other leaders have said and it just kind of lays out what what we focus to do people can go online there to, and donate if they feel 
Um, like it's a worthwhile um, endeavor. And uh, yeah, ButtonLeadership.org. Well, thanks so much, Billy. And we'll talk to you hopefully in the months ahead. And to everybody else, thank you for listening to another episode of The Lanyard. We'll be back soon. 